0: Kid. I'm Charles Foster Kane! Hey, Stella!
1: Suck on this. What is going on, everybody? This is Wrong Real, episode 501. It's the beginning of our next 500 episodes. And today we've got the great Steven Simpson returning, the co host of Pop Culture Gamers, to talk about some of his favorite movies. Movies that were directed by a director who oftentimes gets kind of neglected and forgotten these days, but John Sturgis. He made a lot of big hits, but like all directors, slowly but surely their reputations start to fade. So today we're going to strike a mighty blow on resurrecting people's interest in John Sturgis. Sturges' career in particular because it's kind of a segue from Steven Simpson's previous appearance where we tackled a bunch of guys on a mission. We're going to start with the end of John Sturges' career and then kind of work our way backwards. But Mr. Simpson, welcome back to Wrong Reel. Thank you very much, James. Um, well, how's you? All good? Yeah, I'm, I am I am
2: groovy. Fits as a fiddle, should we say, in this climate? Uh, oh, I'm sorry? Fit as a fiddle
1: in this climate, as you said, uh, Exactly. A yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I always forget we are two cultures separated by a common language. I was like, huh? What? What? <laughs> but. <laughs> well, cool. Well, catch me up, man. What's been happening since Wrong Reel 485? God, it seems, it seems an age ago now, doesn't it? Yeah, I guess that was, what, maybe November? I can't really remember.
2: We were going to do this a little while ago, but obviously, just getting the times right and obviously, I had a bit of work in the ways. It's been a bit crazy. Indeed.
1: Well, any new uh, any new games you're tackling on pop culture, gamers?
2: Well, we, we, what we did, which is really clever, which we got another co-host, and Alan, we got him in there as now. So when we are sometimes incapacitated due to work or, or family reasons, or we just, can try and put a or show or just out. Drinking and get, too much. Yes, and that as well, ching ching. So, um, so yeah, so that works pretty well. And uh, with a a new season for this year, it it seems to be going right. Those two guys have been tackling Picard every week where I've actually – I've got to sit down and actually watch them. I've not had a good deep dive into it yet. Yeah,
1: I'm up through episode seven and I finally decided to retire from watching Star Trek for the foreseeable future. After two seasons of Discovery and seven-tenths of a season of Picard, I finally decided, you know what? There are other shows and other movies I'd rather give my attention to because I just don't like how Alex Kurtzman and his secret hideout writers are handling that franchise. And I feel like the best way to send a message that you don't like the way people are doing things is to give your time, attention, and eyeballs to other things that you think are cooler. And I feel like there's so many podcasts and YouTube channels that devote each and every week to bashing Star Trek. But that does generate traffic and conversation and attention. So it's like... Mm. Maybe the best way to make Alex Kurtzman go away is just to deprive the show of some oxygen, but in any event, I'd much rather talk about Westworld or The Expanse or Black Mirror well, or Altered oh, Carbon or any other sci-fi shows out there.
2: Or even The, the Outsiders, the latest one I've been watching. Is oh, it yeah, Stephen yeah. King
1: one? Yeah, I, I enjoyed that. I've been, I've been, I, I was tackling that on a weekly basis on my mm. YouTube channel. But, but uh, getting back to the subject of games, what have you heard about the upcoming Baldur's Gate three? Because I'm suddenly getting incredibly fired up about that. Because the people who did Divinity: Original Sin two, which is a small mm. indie game, but it basically took the format of Baldur's Gate 1 and 2 from 20 years ago and injected some steroids and it was such a huge hit, people realized, oh, well, if we're going to try to dust off and resurrect this gaming franchise, who better to do so than the people who've kind of artific- unofficially done so with original, uh, uh, Divinity Original Sin. But have you heard anything about yeah, Baldur's Gate 3? Not too
2: much. I mean, keep hearing about games being delayed and I think the biggest thing recently is that E3's cancelled. Yeah, absolutely. And so Microsoft's well, they got their press conference. That would probably be a digital one now for showing off um, the games and obviously the new console that will be coming out end of the year. And at the moment, I think I'm all I'm waiting for, speaking of the coronavirus, uh, Resident Evil 3 out shortly.
1: Very nice. Yeah, I never played Resident Evil 3, but Resident Evil 4 is one of my all-time favorite games. When it came out yeah. of the PS2 years <clears throat> ago, I just went into that world for like a couple of months and and I was very hesitant to emerge but I understand with Resident Evil 3 they've gone through and they've really polished up and cleaned up the old game Oh, but, God, yeah. but apparently it's a massive fan favorite from back in the day
2: yeah, because he did the same with Resident Evil 2 last year, this time last year, yeah. and that Final was Final Fantasy 7 well.
1: just got cleaned up and re-released to a lot of fanfare. Final Fantasy 7 was absolutely incredible. But the biggest game on the horizon for me has to be mm. Elden Ring from From Software, the people who did Dark Souls 1, 2, and 3, and yeah. Bloodborne, and Sekiro Shadowstaff twice. They're my favorite people. They're my favorite, like I guess, game developers or production company yeah, yeah. In, in the world. And what's cool is that this is a combination of... Uh, Hidetaka, Miyazaki, and George R. R. Martin collaborating on this world. So the gameplay obviously is handled by Miyazaki, but some of mm-hmm. the lore and mythologies created by George R. R. Martin and the the brief cinematic trailer they released, if that were an upcoming movie, people would be talking about it like it's Dune and Star Wars and Lord of the Rings all rolled in one. It just absolutely blew people's minds, but hopefully that game will come out by the end of the year.
2: Yeah, I've heard good things about it. I'll say Final Fantasy VII, the remake, I've played the demo now. Gotcha. Which came out on the PS4. That's coming out end of the month. So that's probably the next thing I'm going to probably dive into big time. Yeah, I had As that on a the PS One.
1: Yeah, I mean, mm. because on the PS One, I had the original Final Fantasy Seven, and once again, devoted crack den levels of hours <laughs> into that game. I think. Yeah, uh, yeah Final no, Fantasy uh, just, One, Two, sorry. and Three, Seven, and Ten are the ones that I've played all the way through. Yeah,
2: so I finished. Funnily enough, I've just finished Final Fantasy Fifteen, so I've just done that in fifty-five hours. Very nice. So that that wasn't too bad. But the ironic thing, I think people don't realize that the remake is coming out in sections. So this is going to be part one, which is probably going to be all the original beginning. So all of the the mid-jar scenes and everything else up to there, and then there's going to be another two games coming out to continue the story.
1: Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, I've I've spent so much time in Final Fantasy VII that I don't know if I necessarily need to return to that world. Uh, But I do have very, very fond memories of it. But it seems like for a lot of diehard Final Fantasy fans, Final Fantasy VII... Oftentimes comes up as the best that was ever made in the entire franchise. I
2: think it's what you, if we're going to spin in some movies, it's the holy grail. Yeah. I would say, you know. But, uh, But yeah, but uh, we got a couple of holy grails in this bunch. Must admit, for today, Uh, absolutely.
1: Well, let's start with the last movie on our list today, because this is like I said, a continuation of our bunch of guys on a mission episode. And uh, there were a bunch of uh, really, really good requests from people about movies that we could have included. The last go around, I mean, obviously in the sixties, and seventies. A lot of these kinds of movies got made and people were saying, oh, but you got to tackle like where eagles dare and you got to tackle all these other things. But we're going to talk about The Eagle Has Landed from 1976, which is John Sturgis's final movie. September 12, 1943, German
3: paratroopers snatch Mussolini from his mountaintop prison in Italy. The event stuns the world. Inspired by the rescue of his ally, Hitler orders an even more daring bid to capture his greatest enemy. The explosive events of Jack Higgins' international bestseller, now seen as they happened in a film of epic suspense, The Eagle Has Landed.
0: I want you to go to England for me. I
3: barely know you? To assist in the kidnapping and safe return to Germany, a uh, Winston Churchill. The mission, to seize Churchill at the moment when danger is least expected. Now, a man to lead it, Carl. Oberst Kurt Steiner, commanding the 12th Parachute Detachment. Late autumn 1943, the secret invasion of England begins.
1: What the hell's going on, Haley? Damn to find out. Oh now oh, calm down,
0: Pamela. I don't know what's happening. Colonel Miller and his men—they're not Polish. They're Germans, and they're going to try and kidnap
3: Churchill. What? Now this is Churchill business. I'll feel that once it's seen through. If
0: anything happens
3: to Churchill because you're late, this country's going to swing you from Big Ben by your. Suddenly, the peace of an English village is shattered by German paratroopers. What if Churchill prefers to die? What if abduction becomes assassination? A race against time to save Britain's war leader. Get the men in position. Don't let anyone out of the village. And once anyone comes in, they stay in. A soldier of fortune, whose one weakness is the woman he loves.
1: What catch you?
3: You don't know the first thing
0: about me. Because if you did, you'd know that I much prefer a warm autumn afternoon under the pines.
3: A girl whose love is about to be betrayed. It may not win the war, but it would make them think about a negotiated peace. I never betrayed anything in my life that I believed in.
1: They're going to try and kill Churchill.
3: The time has come, Mr. Devlin, when I no longer control events. They control me.
0: Go, back, Go, Mallory!
3: The most exciting adventure story of World War II. Millions have read the book. Now an international cast brings dramatically to life on the screen this epic story of Hitler's desperate attempt to change the course of history. Stunning, exciting, inspiring, a film you must not miss, The Eagle Has
1: Landed. And oftentimes gets kind of maligned because John Sturgis at this point in his career was a little bit more interesting in going fishing than he was actually in shooting and finishing movies, Mm. but he'd earned the right to uh, enjoy some vacation time, in my opinion. But the eagle has landed. I've been using this as a figure of speech for years, but this was actually the first time I'd seen the movie. Oh, really? That's interesting then. Yeah. So give the pitch because it's a pretty unusual one. What is the eagle has landed? So... During World War Two,
2: uh, Nazi officer uh, Max Riedel, who played by Robert Duvall, devised a plan to kidnap or kill the British prime minister, which seems bonkers if you think about it now. And they all sneak into the into the UK, into Norfolk and set up with a team of uh, German officers who are from a parachute regiment run by Michael Kane to go ahead and do this plot,
1: which gets a bit so what's more ridiculous, the premise or the idea of Michael Caine and Robert Duvall playing Germans? <laughs> well, I've, the thing is, right, I'm cheering on
2: the Germans. You know, it, it's it's a spin on it, really, because you'd expect all these great, so you've got Robert Duvall, Michael Caine, Donald Pleasance, Donald Sutherland, Jen G G. Marsh, Judy Geeson, Anthony Quayle, and Larry Hagman, we won't forget him. And this sounds like this could be a great movie, a sort of war film, but it's, about the Germans, not about us. So, yeah, I, I
1: guess, I mean, that's just, it's so unusual now because people are so accustomed to movies taking such a a hard moral stance on certain topics. But in both this and in The Great Escape, there are German characters that John Sturgis is more than happy to portray in a, in a sympathetic light. And yeah, I totally agree. When you're watching this movie, you kind of forget that Michael Caine even is German because he doesn't do a very good German accent. <laughs> but, he
2: still sounds like his Italian job to me, do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, absolutely. But man, I will watch anything with Jenny Agutter. She is one of the great beauties of the 1970s and early 80s. As a, as a kid, I saw her first in American Werewolf in London, but obviously she's in a million things like Logan's Run, or Equus, or Walkabout, but and even like in the Marvel movie, she's in the Avengers and Captain America and uh, Captain America: Winter Soldier. She just she's such a, a legendary actress, and I think my favorite parts of this movie are of her interacting with Donald Pleasence, like you know, making love to her on the beach and riding horses, and she's just absolutely incredible. That that love affair is so compelling. But in spite of the fact that this movie, like John Sturgis famously basically didn't edit the film, and the movie almost had to be a little bit saved by the uh, editor Anne V. Coates because John Sturgis was just M.I.A., but I think it has some really, really good things in it. I mean, just like the killer opening credits with the camera soaring through the mountains around a castle and things like that, and the ensemble cast. I mean, John Sturgis was a true master at assembling great ensemble casts. and Yeah, absolutely. Oh, go ahead.
2: I was just going to say that it's it's something that we don't see a lot of. I mean, we I suppose recently we've had the Expendable movies, mm-hmm. which has brought that sort of idea of bringing a, a bunch of actors that are great in there all their time together and bringing out one movie. But this was probably John Sturgis's idea,
1: and just lasted for what three movies probably I think and that was it. Well he does have a lot of other movies that I love and adore where the cast is less extensive but I mean he's made the great Clint Eastwood movie Joe Kidd I really enjoyed Hour of the Gun which I saw for the first time for the Wyatt Earp episode episode we did. Gunfight at O.K. Corral yet another Wyatt Earp one and of course Bad Day at Black Rock is one of the most beloved movies of the 1950s so he definitely has a pretty impressive resume and I've seen none of his movies from like the late 40s early 50s. But yeah, Magnificent Seven, Great Escape, obviously, those ensemble casts are really tough to top. But it's funny, as I was watching The Eagle Has Landed, I was thinking to myself, what if this movie had been done by Mel Brooks or like Monty Python? (laughs) You wouldn't have had to change that much, just change the dialogue a little bit here and there. But it actually would have been perhaps even better as just a bizarre comedy like The Russians Have Landed.
2: Oh yeah, or even was it Spielberg's nineteen Exa- forty two?
1: or not, Is it forty two or forty one? I I always forget. But what the, that, I haven't I haven't watched um, that that movie in so many years. Hang on one sec. Oh, uh, it might be forty one. Actually, yeah, I think uh, it's I, I think it it's actually
2: like forty one. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's great. And even when I saw this again uh, recently, it's been a long time, and I forgot that you know some of these smaller actresses like Judy Geeson and Jean Marsh are British through and through. Um, do shine in their own little way. Even though they get they get small sort of segments of story in this, and even for such a slow-paced movie as well, I think, it's not Crash Bang Wallop as a war film would be.
1: But it does get there. As I was watching it, I was thinking to myself, wow, like this really feels uh, slack compared to something like uh, like The Great Escape. But once the battle scenes begin, I was like, god damn, these are fucking intense, because yeah. you have this situation where Treat Williams and a bunch of other Americans are in the area, and <laughs> the actor from uh, Dallas, uh, Larry Hagman, he, yeah. he's pissed because <laughs> the war's going to end soon, and he hasn't really seen any action, so he kind of clumsily and blunders into the situation where he's going to take on Michael Caine and his men, and Michael Caine and his men are just, they're, they're crack troops. They are just complete and total ruthless, like, seek and destroy badasses, and you have this all-out war that unfolds in this small town. The blood that could not be shown earlier in John Sturges' career, now it's the late 70s or mid-70s, mm. so, so the gloves are off. And I was actually really impressed by the shootouts and battle scenes. Yeah, because there's, 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 I believe there's two cuts of the movie. Oh, I didn't know that. So,
2: yeah, and I'm going to have to look at what my Blu-ray um, times timeline is for it. So, but it's just – it's such like – I mean, I don't know if you know – back over here in the sort of early mid seventies, had something like dad's army and which was about uh, a load of old boys in the, in the home guard. And there's an episode there where they, if I remember rightly, they get locked in a church with this German officer. So it seems, it's, it seems very similar to this, that, that church scene. And it always comes back to that one. But I think, I think just the idea of the hostage scenes, them trying to just take the church out. And it's a quaint little village in the middle of nowhere, not a lot's going on. You know, it's probably. I think oh, it's the locals are in- thrilled to have
1: a little excitement initially. When like when Michael Caine and his boys show up in disguise, like, oh, it would be great to have a little excitement in there. Like, <laughs> you can tell like this <laughs> is a very quiet village where people just ride their bicycles and go to church and just go on about their business. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it was weird
2: about the idea that Kane Nariti was going to play the Devlin, which was Donald Sutherland's part.
1: Yeah. All right. So, as somebody from the UK, and obviously you're not Irish, and he's playing an Irish character or a member of the Irish Republican Army. I, as an American, cringe and want to vomit anytime I hear Americans doing English accent, Scottish accent, Irish accent. Doesn't matter. I, I can't handle it because I just find it so distracting. How Is it very cheesy? It, yeah. How it? does it sound to your ear hearing Donald Sutherland well, doing an Irish accent?
2: I think it's it just seems over the top to me. I don't know if it's just me, but it just feels a little bit cheesy. You know, as if someone, let's put an Irish accent on and I'll just come out like this. But it's okay. He's a, he's a, he he hates the British in this film. So, uh, you know, I I can forgive it for that, the way he, where he comes across. Maybe that the Irish, um, with no disrespect, the accent at that time was probably maybe, maybe more for what it was, not as broad or depending on where you're from as well. So, but it's, it's good. I, I just, it is a good movie and it's not, Well known, I don't think. It needs a lot
1: of love. Well, it's got such a catchy title, and I love that, that one bit. It's like, I have the honor to announce that the eagle has landed. <laughs> it's, it's got <laughs> lot, lots of drama, but I think one of the reasons Donald Sutherland's accent bothered me so much is that I just recently did this giant podcast about the last 30 years of Irish cinema, so I was watching all these amazing Irish movies with all these incredible accents, you know, Brendan Gleeson and Colin Farrell and all these. It was just yeah, yeah. I was awash how? in genuine, authentic Irish accents. And how did it compare to that, then? did it horribly did it i help? mean like, it's like <laughs> have, have exactly been... so it was, it's got that cheese I can't, I can't
2: explain it it's got that over the top comedian if someone was going to do a comedian accent in a comedy that's what it would be like
1: yeah it's just i think americans think oh well, if it's irish then you just need to emphasize your r's and like r r r and and it's, it's like to be it... sure or
2: whatever you're going to come across in these sort of sort of throwaway lines you would use
1: it's funny you how like, in america also we have the reverse problem with boston accents where Americans do a Boston accent and think, "Oh, all you have to do is drop your Rs, and then you sound Bostonian." And it's like oh, like, "Oh, where's my cat? And it's like you sound like a cartoon character. Like, just everybody, please stop doing Boston accents unless you're from Boston. Like, if you're Matt Damon or Ben Affleck, fine, do your do your Boston accent. But otherwise, yeah. it's like it's just unendurable. I just feel accents are such a tricky thing. And there's some actors who are just true, genuine chameleons, like Daniel Day-Lewis. You give him an accent, he's gonna he's gonna unlock that that riddle he's gonna he's gonna solve that rubik's cube and he's gonna break it apart put it back together and really figure out how that accent works but mm. i like how michael caine just like fuck it i'm just gonna talk like michael caine even though i'm sure <laughs> <Jeremy." laughs>
2: <laughs> and it's but and actually his character How do I put it he hates the Nazis, doesn't he? Yeah.
1: Well, he's, he's a German he just, who has a moral compass and he despises and he, what he Germany has become.
2: He's he? He sentenced to death, apparently, for, for a crime he committed. So, you know, I don't know if this was like their their sort of penance for him to do this. I don't know. But well, uh, he, he, he's got a heart. And at the, at the beginning of the movie, when you see the, the these um He's trying to help a refugee, and, yeah. Exactly. And she gets shot. And he says about saying... You're, you're as much as the, the, the dirt on my shoe, shall we say, is being polite. I just, he hated him he hate for it. I
1: absolutely hated him. Well, he had uh, in his autobiography a bit of, a, a, of a, a passage on this movie, and he wrote, The picture was being directed by the Hollywood old-timer John Sturgis, and we we're all very pleased that this illustrious veteran had agreed to direct our film. That is, until one day when I was talking to between setups, and he informed me that, now that he was older, he only ever worked to get the money to go fishing, which was his passion. <laughs> Deep sea fishing off Baja, <laughs> California, he added, which was very expensive. The moment the picture finished, he took the money and went. Producer Jack es- uh, Wiener, or Wiener later told me that he never came back for the editing, nor for any of the post-production sessions that, that are where a director does some of his most important work. The picture wasn't bad, but I still get angry when I think of what could have been with the right director. We had committed the old European sin of being impressed by someone just because he came from Hollywood. Like, I mean, if I met John Sturges at any age, I would be impressed because his body of work speaks for itself. Mm. But with every great film, not with every great film, with a lot of great filmmakers, you can see when they're invested and when they're not. Like when a filmmaker gets preoccupied with their family or they get preoccupied with politics or they start being preoccupied with other businesses you can tell when their focus and attention has drifted and you can tell when a director is completely laser focused on the like Stanley Kubrick I feel like with every film you can tell he had nothing else going on in his life other than that movie he would live and breathe that movie until it was done and it seems like John Sturgis at this point he his passion had moved on and that's totally normal but it definitely the movie feels slack as a result.
2: It's a written. It's a bit of a shame, but it's still worth. I would say it's still very much worth a sh- worth a watch.
1: Yeah, I mean the the cast is remarkable. The script's really solid. It just the movie probably could have been a half hour shorter. And I do like the ending where Michael Caine decides to stick around. His, the, his surviving men have left, and he decides to see it through and actually kill Churchill. But as it turns out, the whole thing's been a sham because they've got a stand-in for Churchill and he ends up killing the wrong person. Churchill was never even in the area. So I think no, it's that's a that's right. Yeah, I think it's a remarkable premise and a really cool idea for a movie and I think on paper it's like holy fucking shit. This sounds like a great idea. We got this great director, this great cast, this great concept. Let's do it. But it just shows how execution is everything. For people who like genuine cinematic oddities, and you want to, if you want to see Robert Duvall wearing an eye patch, <laughs> doing <laughs> a German accent, and, and you've, you've got, and you saw, you've
2: got Donald Pleasance play, playing um, Himmler, giving his all for a German accent as well. Absolutely. And, and it, it comes, it, it comes off. He sounds like when I was watching him, probably in one of uh, probably Phenomenon or something like that. You know, one of those films because. <clears throat> Because he's done a lot of, he's done some like Italian movies in the past, but he gives off an accent for the English cut, and he just sounds the same every time, whether yeah. it's German or like, Italian or, or whatever.
1: Yeah, I mean, when I think of Donald Pleasence, the first thing I think of is Blofeld and You Only Live Twice, but even there, he's still just talking like Pleasence. He's like, You only live twice, <laughs> Mr. Bond. <laughs> it's like, I, don't, I don't know yeah. what accent Blofeld's supposed to have, but he is the best Blofeld
2: by far. Oh, God, yeah. No, it's, um, he, that guy's. He he is one of my favourite actors and ironically he is the link for these three not for these three, yeah, no, for two movies.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, well Sturgis, if he found an actor he liked, he'd hang on to him and he would keep casting them them again and again and again. And that's and part of the remarkable staying power of his movies is that if you like Steve McQueen or Charles Bronson or Donald Pleasance or whomever, you're going to see them again in other John Sturgis movies. And also, as much as I might respect John Sturgis' career, I still have a ton of John Sturgis movies left to see. I mean, I feel like I've seen a decent chunk, but he made 44 movies as a director. And I know that during World War II, he was editing like World War II documentaries and things like that. That's right, yeah. Contributing his part to the war that, effort. But yeah, his first feature film goes all the way back to 1946, The Man Who Dared. So between his directorial debut and Bad Day at Black Rock, I mean, that's nine years of movies where he made about 20 films. So I've got this giant chunk of his career still left to be discovered.
2: I think, yeah, even for me, I think the first one I think I might saw was probably Gunfight the O.K. Corral.
1: Yeah, which is a as a, as fantastic a kid, you book. know.
2: Yeah. and i I've, I've seen the Satan Bug, for example, um, <clears throat> Ice Station Zebra, and Le Mans as well. So I do remember those pretty well. And McHugh with John Wayne, I forgot about that.
1: Wait, he worked on Lamon. I thought the, the, that was unc-
2: uncredited, mind you.
1: Interesting. I did not know that because I saw that once in college. My roommate, my second year at UVA, was a giant car freak, and he was like, "Hancock, there's this movie about Le Mans, and they just drive for like two hours." I was like, "All right, well, we can smoke some pot and watch Le Mans." And he had a poster (laughs) on the wall and that sort of thing. I remember that movie having some pacing issues as well, even though it had some marvelous Mm. footage of Porsches (laughs) and Ferraris and that sort of thing. But yeah, when it comes to uh, movies about Le Mans, I much prefer to watch Ford v Ferrari, which was, uh, or I guess it was released as Le Mans 66 in Europe, but I thought that was a, a much more entertaining handling of that particular race.
2: Or probably even Grand Prix with, with James Garner.
1: Absolutely. Yet another John Sturgis uh, actor, part of his um, his stock company. Well, let's go back to the earliest days of John Sturgis and work our way up to this double feature we have that's just a giant Hollywood classic. But what do you know about John Sturgis's early life or early career before he became <coughs> this giant Hollywood player, even though he never really... Apparently, he never really wanted to be a Hollywood player. He wasn't really a creature of Hollywood. He didn't wine and dine the press. He didn't work the scene. He didn't go to the cocktail parties. He very much was a Hollywood outsider, which some people say is the reason why when it came to like awards and that sort of thing, he never really got any attention because he just wasn't really willing... He wasn't really willing to play the game. I don't know if I buy that or not because I wasn't around 70 60 years ago, but it seems like... He, the kinds of movies he liked to make as well. They were B-movies at
2: the time, weren't they? I yeah, mean, I mean,
1: they just were frowned upon probably or, not, or looked down upon as just genre films. But I, I love genre films. But what do you know about his, uh, his early days?
2: Well, for me, it was, it was finding out about his career in the Army, which I think lasted about five years. And obviously he was doing the uh, the training, training films for the United States Army and the Air Force, which I think probably that stepping stone into the career he had other than that i haven't seen too much i mean <clears throat> he's he's been a, he's been nominated for a stack of awards he's 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 won 3, three, three times i think out of the, with the list i've seen and just just it's just a real shame that i just think he's just so underrated from from what he's been doing you know it's it's like if someone if you tell someone uh, you know about the Confetti no Corral, john sturgis would not probably come up
1: they That's what's interesting. He was. He's one of those directors who people love his movies. They know about his movies, but they don't know him by name. I remember when I was in college, I'd seen a couple of his movies before I even made the connection that they were all directed by the same person. I remember I had this giant rack of VHS cassettes when I was in college. Yeah. And uh, in that in that collection, I had Joe Kid, uh, Magnificent Seven, and Great Escape. And I was just checking out the back, back of the box covers. I was like, John Sturges. Oh, John Sturges. I was like, wait a second. They're all directed by the same guy? So like with Alfred Hitchcock, people know which movies are his. Or with mm-hmm. Stanley Kubrick, people know <clears throat> which movies are his. He doesn't have that reputation as an auteur. But if you say, have you ever heard of The Magnificent Seven? Pretty much everyone's going to say yes, even if they don't like Westerns and have no intention of watching it. So his movies are really famous, but he's not famous, which is kind of an unusual thing.
2: Yeah, it's it's a real shame. I mean, he died, what, 1992? So age of 82. I mean,
1: I don't feel that much sympathy. He made movies that people love. He made a lot of money doing it. And he got to have this remarkable career. So I feel like there are worse fates out there than to have a very successful career <laughs> as a yeah. director. So I mean, he, he,
2: he met uh, Kurosawa, didn't he? Well, that and was the
1: biggest source of praise of The Magnificent Seven is when Akira Kurosawa yeah. met him and handed him a samurai sword as a, a gesture of uh, affection and respect between two, two different filmmakers, which is one of my favorite stories ever from the world of uh, film history.
2: Yes. And do you know, it's funny, I didn't know about the sword until about two days ago, because I was, I think, sources for, for looking up um, Korea. And I was obviously used Wikipedia quite a lot with stuff like that. But when I received my copy of Magnificent Seven, which just come a few days ago, I was looking on the back of it, and it was giving you that story. And that was the first time I'd read it. I'd not seen it anywhere. So <clears throat> not sure how Obviously, it's a fa- it's a famous story, but I just didn't pick up on it.
1: Well, it's funny how Magnificent Seven was not really a success initially in America at all. And ordinarily, I really frown upon American remakes of foreign films intensely. This is one of the rare exceptions where I'm like, you know what? I've got room in my heart to love The Seven Samurai, one of the best movies ever made. And I've got room in my heart to love The Magnificent Seven. But ironically, it was a massive hit over in Europe. And then America re-released it, and then it went on to become the second most played film on American television in American television history. And the score by Elmer Bernstein is so iconic; it became like the Marlboro Cigarettes like theme song. Yeah, that's true. It was, yeah, absolutely. But I feel like, but even though people like kind of frowned upon it or looked down upon it for a variety of reasons, if the guy who made Seven Samurai has respect and admiration for it then i feel like that that's all the i feel like that is kind of the final word on the discussion of the magazine seven it's the
2: the only praise he needs even though he's been nominated for for a number of uh things uh, through his career and he i think for example i think he did get um the the nominee for the grand prix in in the moscow international film festival for the great escape so he picked up winners like this but to to get the praise from someone like Kurosawa, who's just an absolute legend. I think that's the only award you need.
1: Yeah. Getting a samurai sword from Akira Kurosawa, I think beats winning 10 Oscars. Like there's no, it'd be like getting like a pistol from Sam Peckinpah or like, it's just, there are certain directors who have this larger than life status or if like, or Stanley Kubrick gave you a camera. Like there's, it reminds me a little bit of when uh, Johnny Cash and Bob Dylan met and Bob Dylan was just getting started and Johnny Cash Handed him a guitar as a gift, and that was just his mm-hmm. gesture of respect between artists. So I feel like the respect of your peers, especially from a, a filmmaker as remarkable as Akira Kurosawa, mm-hmm. that's worth an entire shelf of Oscars. So I think oh, that's God, all yeah. the praise you need. And and for the Magnificent
2: Seven, and you might to tell me more about this because you might know more, obviously, what it's to do with. But it got us, it, it was it was added to the 2013 National Film Registry.
1: Yeah, I mean, well deserved. It's. A beloved film – I don't really follow which films are on the National Film Registry and which ones are not. Like I'm probably more preoccupied with – what's great is that it means it will be preserved, and that's awesome. And like U.S. Library of Congress does a similar thing where yeah. films obviously is a finite medium, and you're always worried about movies disappearing and being lost. And I think Magnificent Seven is one of those movies where – Every father and their son at some point should sit down and watch The Magnificent Seven together. Like my stepfather, Billy Armfield, who passed away a couple of years ago, this was one of his go to movies. He was 26 when it came out, he loved and adored mm. it. And it just, he, he would, just, he called it a cowboy movie. And he would not use cowboy movie in a dismissive way, but he just had an unabashed, unapologetic love of cowboy movies. And his idea of a good time was to sit down on a Sunday afternoon and watch cowboy movies with anyone who was willing to watch them with him. And so Magnificent Seven and Great Escape was a great source of bonding between the uh, the two of us.
0: How many of you did they hire? Enough. New wall. There are lots of new walls all around. They won't keep me out. They're built to keep you in. You hear that? We're trapped, all 40 of us, by these three. Or is it four? They couldn't afford to hire more than that. We come cheaper by the bunch. Five. Even five won't give us too much trouble. There won't be any trouble if you ride on. Ride on? I'm going to the hills for the winter. Where am I going to get the food for my men? I had, I'll grow it. Or maybe even work for it. Seven. Somehow I don't think you've solved my problem. Solving your problems isn't our line. We deal in lead, friend. So do I. We're in the same business, huh? Only as competitors. Why not as partners? Suppose I offer you equal shares. In what? Everything, to the last grain. And the people in the village? What about that? I leave it to you. Can men of our profession worry about things like that? It may even be sacrilegious. If God didn't want them sheared, he would not have made them sheep. What do you say? Ride on. You hear that, Sotero? You hear what he said? Ride on.
2: To me! Yes, it, 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 I'm not going to say it's the greatest question of all time, but it comes close. I mean, Do you know what I mean?
1: Well, I, I, I'm, I'm a Western buff and I like a lot of Westerns out there and I lean more towards films by guys like Sam Peckinpah or Anthony Mann. Yeah, yeah. But when it comes to just pure unbridled glee and joy, Magnificent Seven might be the most fun. Because the moment that score kicks in and you've got Yul Brenner starting to assemble the team, it's nothing but smiles from, the, from that point on.
2: Well, I'm basically going to sort of segue in uh the first the first major scene with forgetting the uh, the introduction there when the three mexicans come into town and you've got the funeral go the 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 dispute of this uh, guy that's been lying on the floor dead and they they say well, we have to bury him at boot hill and what have you and that that scene of getting to the top and then coming back and that music just elevating the whole the whole picture and it just puts a smile on my face just yeah. hearing it
1: I mean, this movie without the Elmer Bernstein score would be a different thing. Obviously, it'd still be well written. It'd still be well shot. It'd still be well performed. But as is pointed out in one of the documentaries you sent me about the making of, a great score elevates a genre film. And you cannot say enough about this score in terms of giving the movie its soul. And I think mm. it's Elmer Bernstein deserves as much credit for the movie's fan base as any other factor. I mean, Yul Brenner and Steve McQueen and Charles Bronson and James Coburn. I mean, they're all incredible, but goddamn maybe perhaps Elmer Bernstein deserves the most credit for the success of this movie because the score is just so uplifting when you, when you hear it. It is. And it,
2: I, even if I would listen to it on its own, I just still get that, 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 that smile on my face. Even, even again, also with the great escape. Because it's, it's like you can play the first two bars of that and you'll know exactly what you're talking about. Absolutely. It's it, the, the culture, the pop culture that, that it's all surrounded in. It's there for life. And when I'm sort of knee deep in uh, pushing daisies, it will still be around and people will still be listening to it.
1: Well, they're very hummable scores. And I feel like if you want to be a, an iconic score, instantly recognizable and instantly hummable is a very important thing. And... Yeah, I, 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 would, uh, I would hope that if, so, if anybody out there were to hear the Great Escape uh, score, they, they would recognize it, even if they don't know where it comes from. or. But yeah, I feel like there's, there's, there's an elegant simplicity to Elmer Bernstein's score. But for John Williams fans out there, John Williams was in the orchestra playing piano on the recording of the score for Magnificent Seven. So you've got to yes, pass right, the yeah. baton from one great composer to the next. But let's talk a little bit about just how this movie came to be because it seems like a lot of actors, writers, and producers recognized Seven Samurai for the masterpiece that it was. I mean, James Coburn says he saw it 12 days in a row where he kept yeah. taking his friends to see it. He was like, you've got to see this movie. And Yul Brenner was a massive fan. And other actors like Anthony Quinn, who wanted to remake it, were also massive fans. So I think for a lot of Americans, they'd never seen anything quite like Seven Samurai. It just floored them and so you had a bit of a bidding war where everybody wanted the rights to it so that they could rewrite it and make it into an american remake but eventually and at a certain point yul brenner had all the rights and was considering even directing it himself but i think the right writers the right director and the right actors all eventually found their parts but i know with like james coburn he got in by the skin of his teeth oh he, and he that, was just it,
2: that was that was that was that was with a chat with um Robert Vaughan, wasn't it? Exactly. He said, oh, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be in this, this movie, the magnet seven. He said, Well, there's one part not, not taken yet, so um so he goes over there, trundled in his office and having to play um Brett with using the knives, for him it was Christmas all at once. He loves the movie, he loves the idea of with the saw, but in this case with the flick knife and everything he was using. That Guy was over the moon, and yeah. just he's like, Do You mean the
1: part about the guy who's like the greatest warrior in all of Japan hasn't been cast yet? <laughs> he just, he, just <laughs> he could not believe that that was the part that was still available. <clears throat> and he's so cool when you that might be my favorite scene of the movie where you see James Coburn asleep and he's just skinny as a bean pole, he's so young and so lean, and he's lying there on the ground and he's got this dumbass kicking his feet, keeps challenging him to these duels, and as a way of seeing who's faster. Cobra will throw his knife, the guy will draw his gun, and they'll aim for the target right next to the person. And just like in Seven Samurai, where the guy's like, ah, he's like, I won. And he just very casually and laconically says, you lost. And then he sits back down, yeah, and then so the cool guy wants know. the duel for real. Because in Seven Samurai, they, both, they pull out their practice swords and they both strike. But the point of the swordsman, he says, well, you would have died from your wounds. I would have survived. In any event, mm. so obviously at that point the King of Cool he has to throw this guy throw down with his knife and kill this guy for real. But it's a great introduction to a character.
2: Oh god, he's so straight and it just his his posture for his body, he's like a plank. He just he's straight as he comes. Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, absolutely. He's <coughs> just I mean, James Coburn was a marvelously physical actor and later on would obviously train with Bruce Lee and get really good at martial arts and that sort of thing. But at this point, he's kind of just a skinny kid and he's just really getting a start. But James Coburn for me is one of the great supporting <laughs> players of American cinema. For me, he's up there with like Harrodine Stanton and obviously he starred in a lot of movies like Packer and Billy the Kid. But I just think James Coburn is one of these great character actors that you could only come from the 60s and 70s, such a creature of that era. But you really can't say enough about Yul Brenner, who, you know, <laughs> born in Russia, has this really unusual accent, but he's so iconic with all black, black cowboy hat, totally bald head, which you and I can both appreciate. Oh, good, yeah. And the way he speaks, I love how he's got such an unusual accent. But for whatever reason, it really works, and he's got this voice that I feel like would make death himself tremble in fear. <laughs> <laughs> does, he, he, does he walk with a limp in that movie, or is it just at the
2: beginning I notice it? Oh, I don't know. I I, I didn't notice. Yeah, just the way he walks over to the to the um, the hearse when he says, "I'll do it." Then come on, give it to me. You know, I'll, I'll go. I'll take it up the hill. But it was it was interesting that he got his lawyer to buy the rights to it, though.
1: Smart, smart actor. I mean, that's – I always tell actors, don't just subject yourself to the cattle call kind of like audition process. Be the master of your own destiny. Write scripts, option books, whatever the case may be. But actors who take charge of the direction of their (coughs) career are the actors who are going to have a much more satisfying career overall because, yeah, if you're just constantly going to auditions, it just slowly but surely murders your soul. Yeah. Did you get to see the whole of the documentary? I did. Yeah, absolutely. I saw it twice actually. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Mm. Because – As as, uh, I can't remember who actually said it, but the testosterone that sits in that movie with all those actors all bidding to be in front, if they can, behind Joel Brenner, it's like – it's mental. Well, I mean Steve Steve McQueen tries to take a car accident. He tries a car accident to to, so he can get off the TV show he's on just to be in the movie before he starts.
1: Yeah, I mean actors are always playing these games where they'll do certain things like if you're doing a scene – if they know the camera's on them, they'll do their best performance and the camera's not on them, they'll do a bad performance so they have to use the take <clears throat> where the camera's on them. And like They're famous for these kinds of games, but for John Sturgis, he was kind of in awe of just how ridiculous things got because oh, all, yes. the, all the actors... They all wanted to be the star of the movie, and they all sort of could be. And a little competition is healthy and it's good, but there'd be certain takes where everybody's like fucking with their hats or fucking with their guns or doing little things to distract from Yul Brenner. And I know, like, Steve McQueen, he's a, he's a legend and he's a giant movie star, but he became a star because he knew how to play these games. But it became a, let's just say, a source of frustration for Yul Brenner. And finally, he said, Look, <clears throat> if you don't stop doing, playing all these games, I'm going to take my hat off. And then no one will ever see you again in this movie, <laughs> which is true because he's, he's so striking looking with that bald head. That's all he would have to do to make everybody yeah. look at him in every single scene.
2: And I think Steve McQueen just backed down from that point onwards and he thought, OK, fair enough, that was
1: it. Well, I know like Brenner, he had on certain scenes, they would build up little patches of dirt for him to stand on and make him look tall and imposing. So McQueen, whenever he would walk by, he would kick the little pile of dirt to try to make it a little, a little bit <laughs> shorter. a little bit shorter. <laughs> Or they're doing things like at one point they're all just riding across a creek, and McQueen just takes his hat off and leans off his horse and scooped up some water. It's not in the script. That's right. But yeah. he knew it would attract attention. But that kind of stuff also fleshes out the character because McQueen's character is not necessarily that well written. And I feel like McQueen would very wisely realize all right, I got to inject a little extra something, something. And so, even if he's just doing little things like his little salute and his little wink, like that little GIF you're always seeing oh, over and God, over yeah, and over yeah. again, it's a it's a great internet meme. So I think Steve McQueen had the right idea to try to you know steal some scenes whenever he could. Because I think originally he was going to take the part of Chico, wasn't he? Yeah, at one point, I mean that's the part to play. I feel like Chico, who's played by a German, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the German actor just
2: bonkers, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, but. After like a couple of minutes you just stop thinking like he, he does not speak with a Mexican accent, but you just stop noticing that he's German and you just kinda roll with it and you're like, All right, well Chico's German, whatever. Like I'm just gonna roll with it and I feel like he but that that's the really meaty part of the seven of the of the Magnificent Seven.
2: Yeah. And uh maybe maybe it's only that guy that can only try and really shoot his own leg off by by putting the gun in his holster and pulling the
1: trigger. <laughs> yeah, he shot himself with a blank and got a nice big welt. I feel like the cast does such a good job of interacting with each other where they're trying to steal each other's thunder, but they also know how to kind of give ground. Like Robert Vaughn doesn't seem to be playing that game, but anytime Robert Vaughn has a moment, your your attention is all on him. I think he does a, a really good job of being this really uh, like understated and has a really moving, powerful performance. And Charles Bronson... He's got like this great relationship with all the little Mexican kids, and they're talking about how if he dies, they'll put fresh flowers on his grave every day. <laughs> it's like all right, thanks, like thanks, but no thanks. I'd rather, I'd rather live. So I, I, yeah. I love his relationship. I think like everybody gets their moments, but Yul Brenner, he's just so badass. Like when he first meets Chico and he's testing his speed and reflexes, he's like, yeah, that's it, yeah, yeah. He's like clap as fast as you can. Like I, I love his accent. It's just so damn cool. So yeah, apparently Brenner and McQueen did reconcile the differences years later when steve mcqueen was dying of cancer and he reached out to him and he said look i just want to thank you said you could have kicked me off that movie when i rattled you but you let me stay and that picture made me so thanks and brenner apparently replied i am the king and you are the rebel prince every bit is royal and dangerous to cross oh
2: man that's so sad isn't it
1: yeah it's just i mean and i mean you'll brenner he's just he's such an incredible yeah. Physical, lethal, badass actor. He's probably one of the most athletic actors of this era, apart from Charles Bronson.
2: Yeah, I mean, going back to what you're saying about uh, the, the test when Chico walks in and he asks him to do the clap, but it was it was uh, sorry, it was Yul Brenner that was the slow one because he was trying to catch it right for the shot. And he had to be slower on the claps so the gun could go between him, so he could put his hands in front of it. Yeah,
1: they had to use a little, a few movie tricks to create the illusion that Yul Brenner had some speed, because actors, when they were making these westerns, some actors get really into the quick draw practice and that sort of thing, and some of them get pretty good at it. And apparently, the worst though was Eli Wallach. who he was just, yeah, who just sucked. And he he couldn't even holster his gun without visually confirming that he hey, was you doing. know what now,
2: every time I watch it, I've been seeing it. I see his eyes look down and he puts it, he aims his hands and goes bang, puts it in there.
1: Mental. Yeah, it, I mean it's it's hard stuff, but I know like I mean some actors like Henry Fonda on certain movies got really into it, but they would hire coaches to get them up to speed. Like Henry Fonda talked about he was on one movie where the guy who was training him, he could do this trick where he could throw a knife into the air, and while it was in the air, like in its arc, he could draw Mm. his gun, shoot a hole in a wall, and then the knife would land where the bullet hole was. Like, that kind of like, dexterity and reflexes like that it was just next level so these are the kind of like technical consultants that you would bring on these movies and the smart actors would learn everything they could but yeah but the actor playing Chico he got really into constantly fucking with his gun which is why he ended up shooting himself in the, the leg <laughs> I mean your Brennan actually got married on set didn't he he did he had a proper, and they proper used the, ceremony and they used the
2: props from the carnival scene uh, for for with all
1: the the band members and everyone else. Yeah, that's that that, that is true genuine romance. We haven't um really just dis- we've been so excited talking about this movie we haven't really discussed the plot yet. What is the <laughs> plot of the Magnificent Seven? It's the first isn't it? <laughs> Um,
2: yeah. So we obviously we've got the <clears throat> the beginning of the film. We have Eli Walsh's Walsh's Calvarius and his band band of Looney Tunes going into the into the village, taking all their food. And and, and um, bits and bobs, and just leaving them with the bare essentials each time. And the three, they, they go. There's always a wise one in some of these movies, isn't there? There's a wise man that they talk to. And they three of the three of the fam, the, the villagers go to the wise man, and they say, "Go and buy some guns." And here comes a scene. From there, we see them rolling into town, and with that gorgeous piece of music from Elmer Bernstein. And the dispute is going on for the, the the guy that's lying on the floor dead. They want to bury him, but there's people disputing that because he was an Indian. And it's I've got twenty, 20 not twenty bucks twenty dollars, but I can't remember how much it was now. Might have been. And they say, well, I want to you buried. You want to see him buried, and then you've got uh, you'll Brenner sitting there on the side, and also there's Steve McQueen, and he says, come on then, I'll do it, and then. Someone gives the gun, the shotgun, to to Steve McQueen, who rides on the side alongside him, and they make the way up to the <clears throat> to Boot Hill to to give the guys a, a sending off. To a uh, dispute from about four or five people, I think it's, that's a great scene. It really is, and uh, just seeing those four guys there, and he just takes two of them out, one in the arm, one in the hand. They back down, and they bring they bring the hearse back down and. The Mexicans are watching this thinking, I think we found our man to ask.
1: Absolutely. And I love how they're basically working for like food and a place to sleep. It's not necessarily like the world's highest paying gig, but I well, was. It's, went... it's 20 bucks for it, as he said. I we could, uh, it's 20 bucks per person. Yeah, it's like the entire village's life saving. And but I always love these setups where, and this is a common thing in these, a bunch of guys on the mission movies where you go from person to person and slowly, but surely Mm. assemble a team where they all have their different skills or attributes. And I love how there's this incredible, uh, kind of a nonverbal chemistry between Brenner and McQueen, where he's asking, how many people do you have on your team so far? And Brenner just holds up one finger and then McQueen responds, but holding up two, it's like, that's, movie making you don't necessarily have to spell everything out with dialogue sometimes you just have to have cool actors just holding up a finger these are these are these are simple guys who speak more with their actions and with their words and of course the very next person they recruit is charles bronson who's probably the most like herculean actor (laughs) of this era but he's up there just chopping wood like a fucking badass i mean in the 50s people weren't really Lifting weights or watching their diet or their nutrition or anything like that, they were basically having cigarettes and mayonnaise for breakfast. Mm-hmm. But Charles Bronson is so fucking shredded and physically intimidating and, and so imposing. I mean, he—he
2: was—they he, 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 was, he, he they were asking him about some of the, the gigs he's done, and he said, "I had five hundred dollars for that one, six hundred dollars for that one." And then when they said to him twenty bucks, he sort of looked in disgust. But uh, twenty bucks at that time would be a million dollars. Because that's, you know, so that <clears throat> that was pretty cool. I think, <laughs> excuse me, <clears throat> we don't get to see much of Robert Vaughn, who slides in and out very quickly, who's on the run. And uh, in between that, we have Chico, of course, who's a young kid, very impressed by what he saw. Yeah, on he's the, basically on... a
1: peasant farmer who wants to be what Yul Brenner is, But he's kind of faking his way into their group.
2: Yeah, he's. I think he's nowhere near the um, elevation of the other other characters, as as sort of um, people that handle their weapon. Do you know what I mean?
1: But he but he earns his spot. Like when he makes basically catches a bunch of fish and has it ready for them, and they see him and they kind of wave him over to the group, and then he waves them back, and so he he earns his his spot. And while I love the nonverbal chemistry between all these actors. There are some really great lines scattered throughout. Like, um... there's
2: one, I think there's one. I think my favorite one. I don't know what yours is. Mine's gonna be James Coburn when they go to. They got three of the ba- three of the bandits, and they start sneaking up and them, and it all goes pear shaped. And there's one bandit left, and he's he's on his horse, trundling way up the hill. Coburn as straight as a die, hands out forty-five degrees, and he's trying to take a pop at them, and. He goes bang, and the, the rider falls off the horse, and Chico goes, whoa. And he went, that was amazing. He's like, that's the greatest shot I've ever yeah. seen.
1: <laughs> no, the worst.
2: What? I was aiming for the horse. <laughs> yeah, that's a
1: great bit. Like, But I like some of the humorous lines. When they first arrive at the village, and all the women have been uh, hidden away, and they finally learn that the reason they've been hidden away is that the villagers are afraid that the Magnificent Seven are going to rape all the women. And Joel Bernard says, well, we might, but you could have given us the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's a line that would not make it into movies today at all, or later on. <coughs>
2: no, not when they
1: uh, when they're meeting with the uh, the bandits for the first time, and we hear the line, "We deal in lead, friend." Like that's so hardcore and so badass, and so it's like it's very simple. We deal in lead, but it tells you all you need to know about the Magnificent Seven.
2: Mm, yes, that's right. Even though they 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 got the upper hand when they ride back in into town for the first time, they set up traps to keep them in, with uh, extra walls and saying And, and Calvarius is thinking, "Ah, new walls! Ah, you just you just you know." And he says, "Yeah, this is to keep you in, guy. You know, exactly. we determined
1: for you not to leave. Yeah, they're not here to and keep they- you out. They're here to keep you in. And so yeah, yeah and they- it's just so cool. Yeah, these guys are here to murder bandits, and that 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 is what they're all about. And so." And also, it was kind of a rare thing for Hollywood movies, Like, and much like in the plot of The Seven Samurai, a lot of these actors aren't going to make it to the very end. Like, it's really tragic as you're watching these total badasses that you've kind of fallen in love with it over the course of the movie. They start getting taken out one after another, like James Coburn, how he kind of dies futilely, like throwing one last knife, or how mm-hmm. Charles Bronson dies saving these little kids. It's really moving stuff at the end.
2: Oh, yeah, I... And even for Harry, um, you know, he, he's there lying there on his last, his sort of deathbed thing, and he's saying, you know, he's thinking. It, it just reminded me the same way that in the last Starfighter, where the the, the character there, I, can't, I can't think of his name at the minute, but when he gets shot and he says, you know, all these jewels were for me, and, and, the, and that's what I was going to get, and saying to him that yeah, there were there is something there for you, you know it would have been great. And he sort of just passes away like that. And it's...
1: I need to revisit the last starfighter. Cause I haven't seen it since I saw it on HBO a couple of times and it first came out and I loved it back then. I was a huge fan, but it's been over 30 years since I've seen last starfighter. So oh my much. God. Really? Yeah. Oh dear. Yeah, so my That's memories a... are, are dim.
2: <laughs> so there's a, there's a podcast in there for you from somewhere for that one. Absolutely. Uh, but yeah, no, it's, it, it's, a, it's a, a real shame that we have three left at the end of the movie. Because um, remember,
1: this Chico's having a little love story in the middle of this as well, and deservedly so, because that girl is a uh, total cutie pie.
2: Well, that 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 scene where they they they've got this nice spread for them, they've got the enchiladas, all the different sort of foods, and Charles Bronson walks in, and just before then, the, the woman serving the, the the maybe some like I don't know if it was beans or whatever, mm-hmm. and she kept putting it onto his plate and to get an attention, and Steve McQueen's looking up saying. Yeah, Where's my plate? Yeah, exactly. And he kept getting more and more and more. And then he gets his plate and he gets like a small, it's just a small handful. And them saying to him, Do you know what? The, the villagers are eating peanuts basically. And they then decide to hand it out to them and give yeah, it all well, to the I kids. I love
1: the Mexican uh, cast in this. And apparently, Mexico, there were pretty pissed by the depiction of Mexico from the film I believe it was Vera Cruz where they'd gotten and where they'd been so frustrated by the depiction so they (coughs) it was a a bit hot water wasn't it yeah so they 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 played an active role in making sure that you know that certain characters would be portrayed in a positive and heroic fashion and that sort of thing but what I think when the best contributions that the Mexicans made to the movie is this pack of guys that's working for Eli Wallach where they basically adopted him and they looked after him and they, like, if he was getting on his horse, they would bring his horse to him and they would, you know, make sure that his gun was, like, you know, not loaded before they handed it to him. And they formed this incredible bond where every morning before they would go shooting, apparently, they would go for like an hour long ride to build up camaraderie. And you feel it when, when Eli rides in the town and he's got all those bad guys with him, like, you can it tell. Looks they look so cool. Yeah, it they, looks they looks so cool, though, don't
2: they? Really, it's, it's amazing just the horse riding scenes alone you know I think they did very well with that
1: yeah well he didn't want to play the part because he saw Seven Samurai he's like Well, oh, the leader of the band it's, it's kind of a nothing role and they said read the script give it a go and check it out and obviously the part had been dramatically beefed up and for him it's a great first pass at the character mm. that he would later play in The Good, The Bad and The Ugly which is oh, obviously glad, yeah. that's the more famous role but still it's like you don't get to that point if you don't have the, like, the baby steps of Magnificent Seven to, uh, to get there
2: yeah, I think a lot. Maybe a lot of people that might listen to this may have never seen The Magnificent Seven, and probably only know him from probably Home Alone. Maybe do you know what I mean? I mean, his career is such an expanse of, of movies.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's like a 60-, 70-year career with all, all, all kinds of incredible flicks. But, but for me, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly is, is the movie. But Yul Brenner, I think this might be my favorite Yul Brenner. I mean, I think a lot of people love him and recognize him from Westworld. But once again, you don't get Westworld without Magnificent Seven because... Well, they, they, his, it wouldn't have happened, yeah, surely. His killer robot character from Westworld is He's identical Chris. to his character from this. <laughs> Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, I think obviously a lot of other people um, for The King and I did.
1: I mean, I, I was an extra in The King and I in high school. I've got some sentimental affection for The King and I, and I know the tunes well. I much prefer The Magnificent Seven.
2: Oh, oh, oh yeah, I totally agree with you there. But there is, a, there is a side of me that remembers it as a little kid and to see how you portrayed that, that, that character. And his acting, and that was, was superb.
1: Yeah, and he he did it on stage many many times. And you he know, did yeah, yeah. I mean, he, obviously, when he's singing "Shall We Dance," it's 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 charming. But when a, if I have to choose between musicals and westerns, guess what? The musicals are going to get <laughs> shot down every single time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: it's yeah, it's funny because I, I I always every time I watch Westworld, which I, I adore the original movie more than anything else. Uh, I'm not I wasn't too keen on the show. I didn't really get into it. But it's just his character in that. It just, I'm thinking, I'm just watching an extension of the Magnificent Seven yeah,
1: for draw. me. Yeah, I mean, when you <laughs> think of uh, like the the classic, iconic Western actor, you know, wearing a black hat, black outfit. Nobody ever wore it better than Yul Brynner. A lot of different actors have tried it by doing the all black thing, but Yul Brynner, he he owns the all black cowboy look for for all time. No one else will ever be able to touch that look.
2: Yeah, it's uh, I I weren't too keen on the. I think I have. It's been a while, but I did see Return of the Seven.
1: Yeah, I've never seen any of the sequels. I saw the remake with uh, like oh, Dental oh, Washington you, I, and Chris Pratt and everybody a couple of years ago. But yeah, Magnificent Seven. They made I think four movies and a TV show, and I've I've left them all alone.
2: No, I I can't put myself to watch the remake movie that came out a few years ago. It's uh, it's probably sacrilege for me to even go there. I just wouldn't it, want to.
1: It's fine, but it's also pretty forgettable. I saw it in the theater, and I gave it a a, a modest, a moderately positive review. And then I saw it on a part of it on TV with my dad and my little brothers. And you know, it's it's pretty forgettable. Like Magnificent Seven from 1960, e- even though it's a remake, it's just one of the most beloved movies in Hollywood history. Whereas the new one, I doubt most people even remember that Denzel Washington and Chris Pratt were in a western a couple years ago. <laughs>
2: because you know what Chris Pratt's career and how that's now migrated into something bigger that the heat that in his career is probably forgotten about, to be honest.
1: Yeah. I mean, if, when people think of Chris Pratt, they think of Marvel and they think of Jurassic world and they think of Lego movie. And those are like his, his massive claims to fame, mm. but any final thoughts on Magnificent seven before we move on to the, uh, the big dog of this episode? Um, I think we pretty much
2: covered it. I mean, one other thing, there was a lot of bonding going on during the, the filming of it.
1: Oh yeah, behind and, the scenes, lots of gambling, yeah. lots of shit talking, Look, and yeah, like they might have been competing it. on the screen, but behind the scenes, they were having a fucking great time.
2: Yeah, and uh, it's great to see. So I'd love to, I'd love to see it in book form if they had this. But some of the shots they show you in the documentary, which probably you won't see anywhere else, it was pretty cool to see see how they were off screen in their own attire by the pool and stuff like that.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think the the rapport you see between The Magnificent Seven was earned by a lot of uh, pretty hardcore playtime behind the scenes. Also, when you're shooting Westerns and you're on location, you're out in the middle of nowhere, playing cards and playing with guns and getting wasted and that sort of thing, that's the way that you kill time. So (laughs) eventually, hopefully, you get these little clicks that form and then they can pay off on the screen. Did One last thing. Were Were they live rounds in that film? Or were
2: they all blanks? Because... Listening to the, the documentary, they were talking about that some of it may have been live rounds.
1: Oh, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I know some movies have used live rounds for certain things, and but I mean, I feel like ins- if you want to get in trouble with the insurance company insuring the movie, the fastest way is to have live <laughs> rounds on, on the set. But I, I have not seen any information to confirm or deny whether or not there are any live rounds on the set.
2: Yeah. because also live rounds
1: if you shoot a live round like at a brick or a wall or whatever it's not necessarily going to create the same visceral impact that you're looking for if you're accustomed to squibs and special effects so sometimes reality is not quite what people want
2: no it's very probably very dull the gunshot probably
1: yeah well let's dip into one of the biggest movies of the 1960s a movie that's uh, at least in terms of the story, based on history and a nonfiction book by Paul Brickhill from 1950, but the characters are a composite of a variety of real life people. But this is probably one of the most beloved movies ever made by uh, about World War II, and you've got. You know, screenwriters like James Clavell, the author of the book Shogun, and you've got W.R. Burnett, who wrote like Little Caesar and Asphalt Jungle, one of the great screenwriters. But this is, I feel like, John Sturges' high watermark. And when it comes to great ensemble casts from the 60s, it's hard to think of one that's stronger than The Great Escape. this movie is justifiably beloved and even with once upon a time in Hollywood of all the movies that they chose to show Rick Dalton kind of being envious of not doing or getting a or auditioning for or not getting they recreate a scene from the great escape where they yeah. shove Leo into the scene and it's just magic yeah so you start to think like wow like Leonardo DiCaprio and Steve McQueen there is definitely some overlap but I strongly recommend it but let's focus on the movie that does exist. So for people who have neither seen the movie nor read the book, give the, the premise of Great Escape, and then we can dive into all the various details behind the scenes, in front of the, and, and on the screen, as well as like the, the real historical events.
2: Okay, so from the book you were talking about, there's a, there was a, a prison camp called Luft <clears> 3. <throat> from there, <clears throat> the end of the movie, just quickly going to the very end, there were 50 people that were shot. By the SS on a hill. This was all oh, such a true story. And even as a child, I didn't know, didn't twig this for a while. But we have here um, a load of load of um, different. <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> we have a load of, of different um, members of uh, the different corps from the from the U- from the US and and the English armies all being thrown into one prison camp. And the way that this was 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 phrased, that they put all their rotten eggs in one basket, and we should watch this basket carefully.
1: Yeah, I mean, Tarantino also used that line in *Inglorious <laughs> Bastards* when they talk about uh, the plan is to blow up the basket. But they yeah. give, they give that line to Mike, Mike Myers' character when he's talking about. He's like, "Oh, Hitler and all <laughs> the like Sonic high ups are all, all our rotten eggs are in one basket." So anyway, so, in, so Tarantino has idea, a lot of so, love for this movie.
2: Okay, so the idea of the movie was that. Uh, in walks richard attenborough who comes in a bit late when everyone's sort of settled in in a few hours not knowing that he was a uh, big x a part of this x organization that was doing their best to disrupt the germans with the escaping at uh, different prison camps and the idea with a meeting was that we are going to do a big escape we are going to get 250 people out of this camp with three tunnels Called Tom, Dick and Harry, which is a great trivia question. And we will disrupt we will disrupt the Germans to the best of our ability in the meantime. And also, I like the phrase, we're going to put the goons to sleep.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Because they're, they're going to do all these cultural uh, activities like sports and gardening and singing, and then they'll meanwhile like they'll dig. But yeah, I love that idea where the, it's phrased so well by the character uh, Ramsey, who says, "Colonel von Luger, it is the sworn duty of all officers to try to escape. If they cannot escape." then it is their sworn duty to cause the enemy to use an inordinate number of troops to guard them and their sworn duty to harass the enemy to the best of their ability. Like, getting home is not really the goal. The goal is to make sure that resources and manpower that could be on the German front lines are otherwise occupied (coughs) looking after these Maniacs in this camp, where it's like two thousand soldiers. But I like that it's like doing everything in your power to deprive the front line of resources, so that there's a better chance that people that are still free have a chance of winning the war. Because I think,
2: from what I remember reading about as well, that this was at the time of D-Day. So that having as many people looking after this this rotten egg of this basket of, 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 of prisoners would detach would would, would sort of push away from the D-Day front that they were, you know, that was all getting involved with at the time. I'm not sure how long it took to escape in real time in this, because I've got a feeling it was quite a few months, because the the choir practice that was Christmas songs.
1: Absolutely. Also, like, if you think about from D-Day, which is like, what, June of 44, to the time that the Germans surrendered, which I think they surrendered like in March or April the following year, you only got like... Like a nine-month window. So they, they were managing to dig yes. hundreds of feet underground. But luckily, it was mostly like sand. So you could basically dig it with your hands. But that also creates problems because it's constantly caving in. So it's more of a problem trying to figure out how to support the tunnel than to actually dig the tunnel. It actually wasn't, wasn't that big of a deal to actually do the digging.
2: No, because at this time, they said they were going to dig 30 feet down. The idea was that they would have no sound disruption in this like 300 feet run that they were going to have to do to get into the trees.
1: Yeah. Cause the Germans, like in real life, they had like microphones on the fence and things like that. They had, they had all sorts of things set up. Like they'd been learning all these incredible tricks over the course of the war to keep people imprisoned. And so this new camp was brand spanking new, was supposed to put to use all the things they had learned. And still they managed to dig <laughs> all these damn tunnels by like, going through bathroom drains or going straight through the foundation of the buildings and things like that. And, the creativity and the ingenuity and the engineering that is called into play by all these actors over the course of the story <clears> never ceases to amuse me because they're having to be so incredibly resourceful with nothing. And like the one big resource that they had was that Americans would get Red Cross packages and these Red Cross packages would come from home and they would- How have bizarre
2: them. was that though, really? Yeah, you yeah, think Yeah, with chocolate to them. and
1: coffee and all kinds of things. But I love how like, it's almost like they're at camp. Receiving care packages. Like when they first arrived in the beginning, they've got suitcases and they're all finding their bunk beds. And they're like these are grown men going to camp. But granted, it's a camp surrounded by barbed wire and machine guns. Mm. But with, a, with access to these resources, they were able to bribe German officials and officers and guards for cameras and supplies and papers and whatever the case might be. And they basically were able to create this little miniature economy. And I, I think my favorite, actually not my favorite, one of my favorite characters has to be James Garner as the scrounger. And I love how yep. no matter what they ask from him, he's like, okay, like we need, like they'll ask for these incredibly impossible things that you would never in a million years would expect him to get. And he's like, all right, well, I'll, I'll, I'll get I'll get right on it. <laughs> I love it, like when Danny's like, I need to pick big, heavy ones. He's like only ones? He's like, do would be better like Charles <laughs> Bronson he's so goddamn cool as the, uh, as the tunnel king I mean yeah. uh, all the names and nicknames and all the, like, the jobs that they have whether you're talking about Big X or the Cooler King or the Tunnel King mm. or the Scrounger or the Forger all the nicknames are just so fucking cool
2: yeah it's, it's funny going back to this I'm, I'm gonna I want to just quickly talk about the Dispersal which was Haynes because obviously re-watching these movies I've seen them a billion times and I can probably catch a bit of script before they actually say it, because I've seen it that many times. But when I was looking at Haynes, I just looked at him again. I'm thinking, where have I seen you before? And it, it is like a light bulb in my head. <clears throat> and I don't, do you remember who, who Haynes was in, in this?
1: Um. Well, dispersal was he played by uh, David McCallum, or is that is that another actor? It's Lawrence Montague. Lawrence, Mon- I, I I don't know if I remember Lawrence Montague.
2: Well, do you know what? I I I I think I should be shocked, but now now I've seen it and I remember. Oh, no, he's Lawrence Montague. Montague he plays Diversions. Diversions. Sorry. Yeah. He was in Star Trek, Balance oh, yeah. of Terror, and a Mock Time. Absolutely. Hundred yeah, yeah, percent. Yeah. And I and I thought, gosh, course. Yeah. He was. Uh, he was going to marry to Pring in a in mop time until Spock was obviously was involved with and I don't want to get into a Star Trek story because yeah.
1: <laughs> <da, da>, <laughs> I thought da, yeah da. <laughs> I
2: just suddenly the light bulb picked like, I know who you are
1: yeah that, that's, the, that's the Kirk versus Spock episode absolutely
2: yeah uh, <clears throat> obviously talking about James Garner he had um is he was in the Korean War, wasn't he?
1: Yes, he was. And he had a similar role in the Korean War and he used a lot of that information in this movie. And that's something that makes these like all the military movies, all the cowboy movies from the fifties and sixties, more often than not, the actors had either fought in World War Two or in the Korean War. And it just gives mm-hmm. the movies an authenticity that they would otherwise lack. Like Donald Pleasant's actually was a prisoner of war like he knew his story's
2: even more funnier actually yeah he
1: knew wherever he spoke but apparently he was um kind of correcting some of the details in the set and john sturgis tried to kind of put him in his place and someone said well you realize he actually was a prisoner of war he knows what he's talking about and from that point on john sturgis was soliciting his input but because he was shot down wasn't he so uh, yeah he was a royal air force pilot yeah so uh, I think Donald, Donald Pleasant's is probably
2: thinking, "Hold a minute, I, I've been in this. I've seen what's going on. What are you talking about?" But yeah, no, it's uh, it's good. And obviously Charles Bronson, I didn't know this until I watched um, a Charles Bronson. The, well, actually, it was a documentary on. There's a there's a show I watch on Sky which highlights all the actors through the years. So in preparation for this, I did watch one of Steve McQueen, Charles Bronson, and all these, and. Charles Bronson suffers from claustrophobia. Yep, because he was a a, mi- a little minor kid in his in his back in the day. Hence, when we see him
1: losing it in the tunnel, it's near on for real. Because that's oh, it's so pitiful. The lights start to dim because there's an air raid right as they're trying to escape. So all the power goes out, and he's in the <clears throat> middle of the tunnel, taking all this courage. He spent. Months down there, but now his yeah. courage is starting to fail. But he's right in the middle of the tunnel, the lights fade, and he goes like, oom, oom, oom. He to kind of like I Oh my god, oh. and your heart just goes out to the poor guy. But yeah, but otherwise, I mean, Charles Bronson, he's so goddamn good in this. But weird behind the scenes uh, fact about him on he met and fell in love with David McCallum's wife, Jill Ireland, yeah. and he joked that he was going to steal her away. But by 1967, Jill Ireland and McCallum had divorced, and she married Charles Bronson. So, uh I just love how he spied this girl from afar and was like, I'm going after her. But what speaking of Bronson, what it reminds me of is how in this movie you have all these cool little cliques and friendships and duos where -hmm. they kind of look after each other and have each other's back. And obviously... Danny needs a lot of help because of his claustrophobia and they're two of the only characters who actually get away but probably the most moving friendship in this is that between James Garner and Donald Pleasance because Donald Pleasance is losing his vision and James Garner is like all right well I'll be your eyes like when it comes time to leave because they're going to leave Donald Pleasance behind because he's a, he's a liability and how he's going to do everything in his power to look after his friend and they couldn't have less in common with each other but they formed this bond over the course of the movie and when Donald Pleasant because he can't see, ends up getting shot by the Germans while he's trying to escape. That might be one of the most moving scenes in the entire movie.
2: Yeah, and I, I like the way that he, he put the pin down in his room. So when they had, he said, Look, you know, maybe you can't take you, but he said, Look, that pin over there, walks over, picks it up, and says, Look, see, I can still see. Even though he planted it there and counted the steps.
1: Yeah, and poor Richard I mean, uh, and Richard Attenborough tests him again and puts his leg out and trips him. It, your heart just goes out to him. It's oh so, god! Yeah. It, it's so pitiful. But I love how just with pen and paper, Donald Pleasance is able to forge like any document. Apparently, he was able to like the character could forge documents even better than the genuine article being created by the Germans. And once again, the resourcefulness of the characters and their ingenuity and the way they'll disguise what they're doing, like when they're trying to dig through the foundation of the building, how mm. they'll Find a way to create noise outside in the to the rhythm of when they're hammering the hole, or when they're trying to figure out to do what they do with all the tons of dirt that they're digging out. They come up with those little pouches inside their legs, and they'll just so- come out- like socks, didn't they? I think. Yeah, and they just it's walk weird. out to the gardens and let it loose, and they just kind of kick it in and mix it in. And so, obviously, you've got all these ing- all these people who are obsessed with escape. But it's like in the beginning, their attempts at escape are so clumsy. they're just leaping into trees and or that are being taken out by the it- by the Russian lumbers, or they're yeah. just they're doing like basically it's not coordinated, but it gets more and more coordinated as they go. But I also like how Steve McQueen has his own little thing going on initially, and they just allow him to do so because they don't want the Germans to think they've completely given up attempts at escape, so it's very useful to have the cooler king constantly trying to escape and getting caught because it looks like they're not completely. And- you know, that not, that not friendship
2: that friendship he had with Ives, because even even von Luger said he said we had one man even jump out of the out of the out of the truck on the way here, and that was Ives. He was just constantly trying to trying to get out.
1: Yeah, and, he's he's cracking. He's he's very close <coughs> to just falling to pieces.
2: Yeah, and it was so sad that we had when we had the. Um, The Independence Day celebrations, where they stole all the potatoes. Well, they took all the potatoes from the site and they made their own sort of pochine style.
1: Oh, it's moonshine! That's a a good old American moonshine.
2: Yeah, and uh, they were drinking that. And obviously, that that point in the film, um, Vernon, the uh, the the one of the uh, lesser means bodies that's looking after camp, that had that that sort of link with James Garner. He spilled a coffee on top of the stove and watched the water run down through into the into the tiles in the floor. And uh, they found that tunnel, which would have been, I think, that wasn't 17 because that was in the washroom, wasn't it? I think, or well, it might have been that one. <coughs> but yeah, that tunnel got found.
1: But a lot when uh, Richard Attenborough tries the American moonshine, he's like, in the three years, seven months, and two weeks that have been in the bag, that's the most extraordinary <laughs> stuff I've ever tasted. It's shattering. I was like, that's the it was, best it way it to describe alcohol. It's stump. shattering.
2: Because it was like I think there was three or four people just dancing together. They were sort of obviously they've not had alcohol in, in years.
1: Yeah, but also moonshine is just it's as basically as close as you can get to pu- you can't make pure alcohol because water from no. the air just naturally gets into it. But it's as close to pure alcohol as you can pretty much get. And I've had it down in uh, South Carolina a few times. And unless you mix it with like a little cinnamon or a li- or or a little a little flavor of some kind, it is pure gasoline. So yes, I can understand. <laughs> his so, when the, so when the guy put it on his hands, when they were testing, he put his whole mouth his hand in his mouth and he <coughs> he's yeah, like no, this. Yeah, yeah, it's got it's got, <coughs> it's got it's got fumes coming off of it and it's incredibly flammable and they're like they're like, Don't smoke while you're drinking it <laughs> which is very very wise advice. But yeah, it's funny how um they're, they're celebrating the American Independence Day and this shows just how dumb some actors can be. But when the Brits are coming through and getting their drinks, one of the Americans says, "No taxation without representation," which was obviously one of the big rallying cries during the American Revolutionary War. And mm. McQueen breaks character and looks at him. He's like, "What?" But because it was it was an unscripted line. It was an ad-lib line. But it just shows out. Actors have many admirable qualities, but reading and learning their history is probably not one of them. And it's like, come on, McQueen, like get it together. It's the fucking Revolutionary War. But I love how like Brits and Americans, obviously, at one point, were killing and fighting each other. But here they are, World War Two, and they're they're celebrating the Fourth of July together. And it's just a wonderful patriotic moment the, in the movie. It, was, it,
2: was it down with the British? They were saying, uh, "Absolutely, were down the British."
1: Hundred percent. The red the redcoats are coming, baby. And um, But I know for some Brits when this movie came out, they're like, what the fuck are y'all doing giving all these wonderful scenes to the Americans? The Americans didn't do shit and because the Americans got moved further inland because the they were so... In, in real life, the American soldiers were getting so close, they didn't want the American soldiers to have access to them and so they moved into a different camp. So when it came to the actual Great Escape, it was largely a British enterprise in real life.
2: Yeah, um, <clears throat> I mean this... So obviously we had James Coburn who was playing Cedric as the manufacturer.
1: And doing an, an atrocious Australian accent.
2: <laughs> but it but it doesn't matter because he's so cool at it. And and he was great. I mean he they were building the uh the, the the pump to pump the air through the tunnel.
1: Yeah, but as obviously he's like, he's like he's learning Russian from Charles Bronson, and he's like, "What's it mean?" He's like, "I love you." He's like, I "Love you." What bloody good is that? He's like, "I don't know. I wasn't going to use it myself."
2: <laughs> Was it Lavis Blue Blue or something? He says, yeah. isn't he? <laughs> I mean, that first five minutes, when I say they said they're all diving into the trees, and uh, those two are there, and the guy, the the Germans, looks and says. He he knows who they are, even with the hat on his head. Come on, Cedric, out you go. Step, you know. And then Charles Bronson's starting to talk in Russian to defend him, and he says, "What about you, Lieutenant Lusky?" Out you go, you know.
1: Yeah, that's no, great.
2: <clears throat> Just absolutely superb. It's 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 I did so many little bits in those movies that.
1: And it's it, a long. It's nearly three hours. But it it <coughs> flies appa- by. It feels like a ninety-minute movie.
2: Well, apparently, um, where is it? So. Yeah, so, so John, John Sturge was saying that this is not a war story. It's a story of courage and gallantry. And on the making, it took longer than expected with a running time of two hours, 53 minutes. <clears throat> He's saying it was this was too long. He, he didn't want it to be as long as that. Um, his thoughts was beyond two hours, your emotions become dull and tired. But I was correct him on that. I'm not dull or tired in the whole three hours of that movie personally.
1: Yeah, Did I agree. Say? This movie, it's pure unbridled entertainment from start to finish. And I think while you're watching initially, you're thinking, wow, this is a pretty lighthearted movie for the subject of people stuck in a prisoner of war camp. But by the end of the movie, it does find that darkness that feels appropriate to the topic because this movie is dedicated to the 50 soldiers who were... They weren't executed. They were murdered because you could only... Yeah. But according to the rules at the time, my understanding is that if someone was actually a spy out of uniform, then they could be shot. But if somebody's in uniform as an officer, the uh, the Geneva Convention applies, and you have to treat them as a the prisoner of war and certain there's a certain code of conduct. And the Germans yeah. basically... Uh, ignore the Geneva Convention and put 50 officers to death when they should have just gone right back to the camp, but they were just tired. At this point, the Germans had, were fed up and they were tired of fucking with them.
2: Because they were saying, look, the, I know, I, I can't remember who it was then, but he said, look, we, we, this is my uniform. We bleached it so to, for, for the different colors. And they were just ignoring them in, the, in, the, in that cell. Yeah, well, that was a huge amount of them.
1: Because I, I, I get the, if somebody has actually experienced the horrors of World War II, I imagine they would probably be annoyed, perhaps, by the lighthearted tone. But the tone, but the lighthearted tone is what helps make this movie turn into a massive commercial smash. Just the idea of like Steve McQueen with a baseball ball, baseball and glove in his cell for twenty days, at twenty days in a stretch, just throwing the ball against the wall over and over and over again. It's probably the most famous baseball glove and ball. In movie history,
2: if you to auction that off, it would cost a fortune, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah,
1: but at the very end of the movie, when they finally capture him again, as he's walking in, they hand him his glove and ball, <laughs> and
2: yeah. back into well, the cooler he goes. It's, it's funny talking about Steve McQueen. So the scripts were rewritten, um, and after the first six weeks, they they were showing what they what they'd filmed, and Steve McQueen walked out of the of the of the showing because he wasn't happy. Mm-hmm. So they had to rewrite that, <clears throat> and one night. James Garner in his place in Munich, they and with James Coburn, chatted to him, persuaded to him to to come back, and said, "Look, you are a hero in this movie because of what you did in the escape to help the escape get through," and it sort of persuaded him to sort of carry on with the part, which was quite amusing.
1: Yeah, I mean, actors, it's a weird thing where on one hand you can criticize McQueen for being a big baby for throwing a temper tantrum, however, perhaps his instincts were on because. All these scenes with the motorcycle, one of the big selling points of the film, one of the big reasons people love this movie so much, were not in the scripts, not based on history. Those are pure movie star moments where, like, we've got Steve McQueen. He loves motorcycles. Let's give him all these scenes where he's going to elude the Germans, uh, you know, riding through these fields. But they're some of the most exhilarating scenes in the movie. So while I might sometimes Enjoy ridiculing actors for their, you know, bratty behavior. And I need more screen time. I need more things to do. I need to be more of a hero. I think in this case, his instincts were absolutely on point because for the long movie like this, you're about two thirds of the way through. You need that shot in the arm. And suddenly, Steve McQueen's on the fucking motorcycle. Oh my God. Like he's just the coolest motherfucker in movie history. And admittedly, he did not get to do the big stunt. That was his friend, uh, Bud Ekins or Ekins. Yes, right.
2: Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, who
1: also would later double for McQueen in things like Bullet. But goddamn, like that scene, your soul just feels happy <laughs> during yeah, all the, the motorcycle. The actual, the, actual,
2: the actual editing of that scene, where you, I was, what I think which, which program I was watching it on, where they were showing like right, this is a, this is the whole scene, and they said right, this is Ekin, this was Steve McQueen, blah 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 blah. And something I didn't know, but he actually played a German officer chasing himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Which is bonkers and it is and they, they showed that thing yeah this is steve mcqueen actually chasing himself as dressed up as a german officer just gives love for bikes yeah you
1: know? so people might occasionally criticize hollywood for changing things but i feel like this is a, a classic example where you have a very somber gritty realistic historical topic but a little hollywood pixie dust sprinkled into the equation lifts the whole thing and <clears> makes this <throat> what could have been a two and a to like a three hour ordeal, like a total slog. Suddenly it's just like joyous experience. And admittedly it gets very dark when, when everybody gets fucking murdered at the end, but it it gives you all the entertainment value you need to, to stay excited throughout.
2: Yeah. And actually James Coburn survived as well, didn't he? Because that was great. Yeah, He's sitting there, he's sitting out in a cafe out in the open just for the newspaper. And these three German officers pull up and sit down and, the, the barman comes over and hands him a drink, and he's going, telephone, telephone. Goes, what, 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 what? For you, for you. Telephone. And then the two the two barmen duck because he's got the phone, and he sort of sits there and joins him as the car comes along, and they, they just take out the Germans completely, and he realizes that they're the resistance.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's so depressing, though, how like after going through all these links to escape – just how few, only three actually make it away. But look, James Coburn is like slow and easy wins the race. He's just chilling on a bicycle, goes to the cafe. And see
2: <laughs> so people, he's got that straight posture in that bike, and he's sitting there cycling along. Absolutely, not a
1: worry and a care in the world. And uh, uh, I like seeing that moment where the French Resistance gets to have their moment where they just mow those guys. People like to make fun of the French for being soft, whatever the case may be. But the French Resistance was not soft. <laughs> they, they were some ba- oh, some, absolutely not some bad <laughs> some badass motherfuckers. But also, like I love how. With one of the characters, English politeness is his downfall because they're boarding. I guess they're getting on a train or a I bus. I know you could have And it's about like, here, yeah. good luck. And he says, thank you. And it's like, stop <coughs> being so English. Like, <laughs> well, that was
2: Gordon Jackson, obviously, um, his character. And I don't think just off topic a little bit because Gordon Jackson you,
1: do you know him at all in any other movies or anything um hang on a let me look him up real quick because obviously I know I've seen it's hard for me to disassociate him from this particular film but he was an upstairs downstairs Which is, that
2: was a downtown Abbey version of this, in this in the 70s for yeah. example so he played a butler and that suited him to the ground later on in his career in the uh, in the 80s he he was head of mi5 in the professionals it was a TV show over here in the UK but it, seeing him in this film and from what I've known from later on in his career, he was really good in that. And he was very British, very eccentric in his ways. Just sitting there alongside Richard Attenborough is is, is number two.
1: But they, they're such an incredible team. And I love the way they work together. And I love how they essentially seduce Steve McQueen into <laughs> doing this job, because Steve McQueen's trying to escape. He really wants to get out of there. He really wants to get back in the air. And they convince him to, on his next escape attempt, to get out there and gather information, do some reconnaissance, because they don't know what's in the immediate area around the camp, and they desperately need that information. And so they convince him to not only escape, but then to allow himself to get caught and to come back. But they're they're, they're very persuasive and they're very organized, but I just love, like they just are such an, incri- everybody in this movie, they just all, they bring their own little unique ingredients to the equation and it all comes together for a greater whole. He's sitting there, that coffin. and he says,
2: you're coming right at me with this, aren't you? I can see it. I know what you're about. And yeah. he, he said, well, we've got no way of doing it basically. And he, uh, obviously he says no at the time. And he says, anything any help with the tunnel. I'm, you know, I'm here for, you know, and it wasn't till then when Ives tried to, go over the fence and died. He said, um, right tomorrow night I'll do it. Yeah. He's
1: finally, he's he finally
2: persuaded <clears throat> to do, yeah, to go through. I did like James Garner's, um, friendship with Vernon though, because when he wanted to get a wallet, they needed a, um, some information and papers just to know what the Ple- Pleasant was going to be forging. And he, he invites him for a coffee and he opens up that, 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 as we said, the, the first, the, the gift box from the team, for, to, to yeah, The, help the Red
1: Cross uh, care package. That's it. And so he, he
2: opened up this. He, he had a lock in it, believe it or not. He opened it up and he brought out all the, the coffee, the chocolate, and <laughs> and then von von Luger, von Lugas butter. He said, "Yeah, keep it, keep it." Oh no, that was it. And he just lifted his wallet out of him as he was just given there and just walked away well, with it. Well, it's
1: so smooth because you think, oh no, like James Garner, he's overplaying his hand. He's like driving this guy away. He's upsetting him. But then you realize he's actually going to pick his pocket instead, of, like, him, instead of bribing him with the chocolate and with the coffee. But yeah, that that relationship is so interesting to watch how slowly but surely he creates a relationship with the German officers because yeah, there's no way they're going to be getting access to certain things without those kinds of relationships. And yeah, but the Germans—they didn't have access to coffee, and they're probably like, they, getting access to a few smokes now and then. That was also a, a, a big deal. So, yeah, everything about this movie, man—they just—they absolutely crushed it. They absolutely nailed it. I can't think of a single scene or a single line or a single performance where I would revise it, remove it. Like I can't live without any of the total running time, and that's yeah. that's that's tough to say for a nearly three-hour film
2: when when they're when they're in the washroom, and he's, he's tapping away with a stone and the, and the cloth around it to, to dull a sound when they're uh, knocking the make the tunnel a bit bigger to drop down, and then suddenly the the guys come in, the Germans come in and say, you know, bedtime, whatever, you know, up to, and they put the cover back on. They throw a bucket of water on in the on the on the floor there, and you have got James Cohn just on the side, and you got. He's having a wash. Sorry, Charles Bronson's yeah, having yeah, a wash. Yeah, he's like, shower. James I need a wash. <laughs> a a I, I love it. James Cohn says, he says, and you? I'm the lifeguard.
1: Yeah. <laughs> the, the the chemistry is just, it, it's so, we talked about this a, a bit on the uh, Hal Needham episode about how it takes incredible skill to act in a way that appears effortless, but there's so many effortless performances in this where it looks like they're doing nothing, but it's so – there's an elegance to the simplicity. And so, yeah, just those little throwaway lines, like I'm the lifeguard, it just creates this incredible kind of cool, laid-back, laconic sense of humor that's sprinkled throughout the movie that keeps you uh, keeps you engaged from start to finish.
2: Yeah, it's I say, we didn't get to see how James Garner got all that cloth to make because when they go when – when Richard Attenborough goes to see the, the, the guy, he seems very, very camp. And he's showing him how well we're gonna do double breasted, we're gonna do this, we're gonna do that, we can make uh, we can make work jackets out of this this stuff here, battle dresses, they could be workmen's outfits. And he's sort of saying, We can brush this to make this look nice. And you got this like array of of cloth and he said, What well, god, where the hell did you get them? And he said, I asked him, he said, Don't ask. So I'd, we didn't actually see in the movie how he got all that stuff, but you just imagine he just worked his magic with it.
1: Absolutely. Well, I, I love also how, while it is a Hollywood movie and there's a lot of Hollywood magic, they were hell-bent upon giving it some authenticity. And they actually got Wally Floody, the real-life t- tunnel king, to That's right, yeah. work as a consultant on the movie for almost... Uh, for, actually, no, for more than a year, almost full-time. And so I think... When it came to the shots, because obviously for the shots in the tunnels, you're basically looking at like half a tunnel because you can't shoot inside a tunnel from like that from is the side. Off. But it they're eerily compelling, and you really start to feel like you've been down in there for fucking months with these characters. And I love how Charles Bronson is so physical. At one point there's a a cave in, and he just launches down the tunnel on that little sled. It's like God damn, like Charles Bronson is just a, just a remarkably physical actor because it seems like. 70s was Charles Bronson's decade, but I love how in the late 50s, early 60s, we got to see him as a, as a relatively young guy. Even like in movies like Crime Wave, we really got to see him in his physical prime, but it's just a remarkably physical performance, But obviously, uh, maybe Charles Bronson, some of his best acting chops that we ever get to see in, 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 in any of his movies. Yeah, and the guy
2: that, the guy that was sort of like a consultant regarding The Tunnel, he actually got in the tunnel and he was saying, no, this is this is not cramped enough. You've got yeah. to make it smaller. His elbows were touching the sides of the wall in the original tunnel. Yeah, was it? it was like I think maybe a, like a 60 foot run that was just a slice section of, of and you, what I think the, the shots I could see was like you could see all the woods. The, the way they could build the outside of the tunnel to hold it together, then you saw the inside in this long run. You know, Very uh, very clever how they, how they put that together.
1: Everything about this movie had so much care and attention to detail, and I know like when actors weren't acting, or when the technicians weren't doing certain things, they would just find uh, ways to stay occupied, like the barbed wire fences That's that the yeah. yeah. Queen crashes yeah. into, they had people creating those out of rubber like, in their spare time, because there were just so many things to do, but it seems like the tone of the camp in the movie very much was applied to the tone of the atmosphere of the set as well, mm. and I love about the idea of like everybody pitching in to uh, to help out with the uh, with the greater effort. Yeah, I mean, John Sturgis, I think, obviously, was justifiably proud of the the final product. And when he's talking about the making of the movie afterwards, he said, "I'm not proposing that's a good way to make a picture," because he's talking about how they went through six writers and eleven versions. But he says, "But it was yeah. the right way to make this one." And I, I couldn't agree more. This is, for me, his his great masterpiece. I've seen a lot of his movies. I really love a lot of them. But Great Escape is just one of those special Hollywood classic movies where here we are almost 60 years later and it remains as a gloriously entertaining movie to watch.
2: Yeah, it's it's so dear to my heart. You would not believe how much it, it is. From seeing it for the first time as a child, then buying the VHS tape in widescreen, so there for the first time I saw the
1: yeah, the I had that as well in the, in the mid nineties. I, I had the widescreen VHS. It was a double. It was one of those double VHS box <clears throat> sets. So I had that,
2: and I, I think I've even put it on Twitter. The actual one I, I I had, I saw it on sale on eBay, and watching it this time, I actually had a Dolby soundtrack, so I had it in five point one in the room, and it was nice to hear it in a different, completely different way from from before from 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 the uh, obviously from the the pan and scan to the widescreen and then the widescreen in five point one it was it's superb it's just I cannot praise this movie enough and it's I think this one will go with me to the grave I think
1: well now that we've done two episodes about a bunch of guys on a mission is The Great Escape the best movie of a bunch of guys on a mission. Because admittedly, they're not like on a, like a mission mission where they're like it, attacking a bunker or whatever. Because it's
2: not a war movie, is it?
1: But they do have the mission of escape. So I feel like it qualifies. And I think this might... I mean, there are a lot of good ones, like The Professionals is one. You could even say The Wild Bunch is one since they're having to rob the train. But mm. I think of all the movies from the, from the late 50s to the late 70s that fall under this umbrella of a bunch of guys on a mission... I think, for me, The Great Escape is the, the mother lode. I,
2: I would agree. I think I would agree with that totally. It's, as it's a bunch of guys trying to get out of a prison, it's still a mission. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I, as,
1: I, you, have to, you have to be loose with the definition of the, this little subcategory, but for me it absolutely applies, because it, it exemplifies all the qualities that you're looking for in those kinds of movies. Because there's still
2: some others that we've never discussed, like, Others that are close to my heart, like the Dan Busters, for example, which is obviously yeah, that's another true story. We've got the 633 Squadron. They they again are very close to my heart, those movies. And I do have them on Blu-ray. And Where Eagles Dare is another one.
1: I've never seen Where Eagles Dare, so it sounds like we're going we're to really? have to do A Bunch of Guys well, on a Mission Part 3. And I know there's another one that Roger Corman, either produced or directed, that was like from the mid-60s that Tarantino really likes, that he recommended when he was uh, doing that great episode of Pure Cinema Podcast about all the movies that inspired Once Upon a Time in the West. But I'd have to do some, uh, some digging to figure so out. So
2: if we're going to present one, I'm going to say 633 Squadron there. Gotcha. I see it. Yeah. Okay. I've got the remastered "The Damn Busters," which is that one, and where Eagles there, they would be the three I think that would would, would, would would come out next if we if we can if we're gonna do a part three at some point.
1: Oh, it's The Secret Invasion. That's the one I was trying to think of. The Secret Invasion, which has uh, Stuart Granger and Mickey Rooney, but this is in 1964, and it's basically like a warm-up for the Dirty Dozen, because you have a bunch of criminals who are pardoned on the condition that they accept a mission to free a captive Italian general from the clutches of the Nazis. So yeah, that's 1964. It's only an hour and 35 minutes, so it's not like a big three-hour ordeal, but it's also got Henry Silva and a bunch of good character actors, so it Mm. is not as memorable as the Dirty Dozen because obviously one of the biggest hits of the 60s but you can see how the secret invasion uh, is, a, a, is a key component of this trend of a bunch of guys on a mission from that period
2: yeah but yeah there's, there is so many classic movies that I don't, a lot of people have probably never seen and heard of and well worth a visit in my eyes absolutely
1: Absolutely. Well, Mr. Simpson, it's always a pleasure and a half talking about these topics with you. I guess now we've done what we did, your favorite composers. We did Ray Harryhausen. We've done a bunch of guys on a mission. What else have we done? Oh, is it four episodes total or five that we've done so far? I thought it might have been about, I thought it might have been four maybe. Well, is there anything you want to plug or promote or put out there when it comes to social media or your own content between well, now and the, uh, the next episode that we record?
2: So, well, obviously Twitter at Steve 0, 07 is the, the best place to find me. I do have an Instagram account, which I can link out, uh, which I just just put vinyl out there. So especially that Western one I got recently. I mean, you must have saw that with Eric um scores. That was pretty cool. And at Pop Culture Gamers, where we do our own podcast with gaming, TV's, and movies as well, you can find us on that. But yeah, it's about probably about it really. But I, I've got a, a list as long as my arm for you about podcasts and so what we could do.
1: You know, Very what I mean? nice. Well, keep sending ideas my way, and we will do our best to do all of them, or at a bare minimum, we'll do the best of them. But um, yeah, I, I had a, a, an absolute blast doing this episode. And John is one of those directors, where since I was in college, I've been a big fan. So I just feel like. He, if this podcast can play any role in the conversations surrounding movies, it's shining a light on neglected or fading directors from the, uh, from the past that I particularly admire. But, um, hope y'all have enjoyed this episode. And if you want more content, you guys find my YouTube channel, Geek with James Hancock, but can't thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed the show, but more importantly, as always onwards and upwards.
0: It ain't like it used to be, but, uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and
1: blow.